Tate Catholic. This is your host, Taylor Schroll. Welcome in today. Guys, it is cold. We're here in Central Texas. And we have no idea what to do with ourselves. <laughs> like, Texas shut down today. It's the weirdest thing, man. It was 22 degrees. They were like, it's going to be the snow apocalypse. It didn't snow at all. <laughs> There's going to be ice on the roads. There was no ice on the roads. There was some ice on my car. Like, there was ice on people's cars. Like, so all that happened, here's what really happened, especially for, like, the northerners that listen to the show or, like, that one person that listens to the show, like, in Sweden. Here's what Texans do when it gets cold. If we think that there's going to be a small amount of ice that will inconvenience us on our cars in the morning, we will cancel literally everything. School was canceled. Work was canceled. Although work was canceled by my boss, and I still had my meeting with my boss. So work wasn't really canceled for everyone, but it was canceled for some of us. School was closed. So my son was home with my wife. My poor wife, man. Like, this was a day where, like, he was going to be gone for a few hours to give her a reprieve. Nope. That was gone. All because about a quarter inch of ice was on our windshields this morning. So I hope you are staying warm. Uh, for those of you listening on, um, on Red Sea Radio here in Central Texas, which is where we are recording at St. Mary's Catholic Center. For those of you listening in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I hear it actually snowed there. So I hope that you guys are staying warm this week. And I hope that this show warms your hearts. Oh, I don't mean that. Or do I? You'll never know. So what are we talking about today other than it being very, very cold? First of all, let's not talk about this week. Let's talk about last week. That's how we have to start. Last week's episode with Ali Hoffman was a riot. And Allie made a joke that she had four followers on social media last week. That's, you know, survey says that's a lie. <laughs> she has a, a couple more than that, which helped get this episode into the top 10 most downloaded episodes of Forte Catholic history within four days. The fastest, most downloaded podcast. So, Allie, thanks again for coming on. I'm glad people responded to it. And enjoyed it. And the reason, one of the main reason I bring it up is because, of course, my pride. <laughs> Which brings in what we're talking about today. Father Augustine Wedd is going to come in in our second segment, talk about humility. Because, of course, I need it. And you probably do, too. Because it's, you know, pride's the main sin <laughs> that uh, that we all have. It was the first sin of, of Satan. So, you know, pride's a thing. And it shouldn't be. And Father Augustine's going to teach us how to do that. Also, side note, if you want to have some laughter this week, Allie released a new In the Galley with Allie video. Ironically enough, about ice and ice skating. You have to go check it out. Search Allie Hoffman on Facebook. Go watch that In the Galley with Allie. It is tremendous. She makes a walking on water joke accidentally. <laughs> it is just fantastic. Go watch it In the Galley with Allie. Um, Father Augustine Weta is going to be great here in our second segment. He is a, a Benedictine monk who has changed my perception on monks forever, and he will absolutely do the same for you. He is not what you think of when you think of a Catholic monk. And, and then uh, also, 
Speaking of our top 10, our second most downloaded episode of all time had a guest by the name of Trent Horn from Catholic Answers. He is going to join the show again this evening as January is Pro-Life Month and the March for Life is happening this week. And he is one of the premier speakers and authors on the pro-life discussion. So stick around. You did not want to miss that in our final segment today. So that leaves our first segment where we're going to talk about uh, what I did yesterday. So uh, our staff from Ablaze Ministries, uh, every year around this time, you know, we've been gone for Christmas break and we all come back together. We work for a couple of days and then we're like, you know what? We just want to have some staff bonding. So the last two years in a row, we've gone over to Top Golf over in Houston. If you've never been to Top Golf, it's absolutely amazing. You get to sit, you know, like re- if you've been regular golfing, you know, it's this, it's 18 holes, there's tons of walking, like unless you get the cart. And even if you get the cart, it, the carts at golf always bothered me. It's like, you can drive this cart and it, literally everywhere there are signs that say, do not drive the the cart on the grass. And I'm just like, well, that means I still have to walk 800 yards that way because I'm a terrible golfer and I hit my ball way over there away from the cart path. But I digress. That's not the point we're trying to make here. At Top Golf, it's a lot of fun. It's kind of like bowling and golfing have combined. You go to this one place, you hit the golf ball from the same place every time. There are heaters when it's cold. There's AC when it's hot. They bring you food. They bring you drinks. There's couches and stuff to be able to hang out. It is so much fun. And we went with our staff. We got like three of these uh, areas that we could all golf from. It was just a tremendous time. You couldn't stop us from laughing. Kind of because we're a funny group of people, but mostly because we were watching each other golf. It was tremendously hilarious watching a bunch of people who had never played golf try to golf. And for some reason, I was the one getting made fun of. I didn't get that at all. They were making fun of my wide stance, right? Like I had to like widen my legs. Well, it's because the golf clubs were so short. I'm 6'2", and these golf clubs were like a foot long, but you know, whatever. That's not the point. But Here's what I want to talk about today. I was thinking about what the heck does Top Golf have to do with our faith and my experience there yesterday. One thing that we like to do on the show is look at the transcendentals, right? Truth, beauty, and goodness. So we look at we look at certain things in the world or in our experiences, and we say, what in this is true, good, and beautiful? And like, how are we able to connect these these things in our common life? With our faith, and I'm going to try to do that here with Top Golf uh, because I've just been thinking about it uh, over the last week or so when I was planning the show, planning on going to Top Golf, and then yesterday going to actually play at Top Golf. I want to talk just about regular golf here for a second. You've heard of it, you've seen it be played on, you know, Sundays on CBS. You've heard of Tiger Woods. Uh, if you can name another golfer, congratulations. You know, like there are so so many of us only know Tiger Woods. You have to be like an actual fan to know two or three and like a diehard fan to know more than what, eight? Like there are, it's just not the most popular sport. But man, when Tiger was in his prime, golf was on the rise. That all these, you know, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour were all making uh, golfing gear. People were going to check it out. It was just a huge time for the game of golf. And then Tiger Woods, uh, you know, his 
start to decline with age and all kind of other stuff. Um, so in 2006, in the height of the Tiger Woods era, about 30 million people were golfers. They they watched golf regularly. They played golf regularly. They had clubs. They had the gear, this kind of thing. In 2013, just seven years later or so, it was down to 25 million. Now, 25 million is still a lot of people. But in seven years, for it to decrease 5 million people, that's a huge number. I'm not, I'm not the biggest proponent of math. I'm not very smart. But what's, what's 30 divided by 5? 6, right? They lost a sixth of their audience, a sixth of their active members in just seven years. In 2013, uh, not only was it down to 25 million people that were golfers, uh, 160 of the country's 14,600 golf courses were closed. Again, that percentage is very high. It's the eighth consecutive year of net closures. There were more closed golf courses than there were opened. Also around this time, uh, and even over the past couple of years, all these big companies who had all these, uh, you know, a golf line of gloves and socks and clubs and all these sorts of things. All those companies like Nike said, yeah, there's not a market for this anymore. We're not going to make golf clubs. We're not going to make the shoes. We're not going to make any of this stuff. And it became more of a niche market kind of thing. Whereas actually like golf companies that were the only people left making these. In recent years, it's gotten so bad that in recent years, golf people, the people like, you know, like the PR people for golf, like I don't know who they are, but they've started to try to make the stats look better of like, okay, what is an active golfer? They started including things like driving ranges and simulations and top golf for people that were included in golf. And it's like, they're just literally fudging the numbers to like try to salvage that golf is still relevant and a big part of our American culture. So what were some of the reasons that golf declined? Number one was time. Like p- people's lives were changing. Um, the pace of our, of our culture was changing. Golf takes a long time. It takes, you know, three, four hours to hit around a golf. Then you have to drive there to drive back. I mean, it, it takes up your whole day. I mean, the old the old joke was that like Saturday mornings, you know, the husbands would leave to get away from their wives and kids for a day, and they'd be gone until almost dinner time, playing golf, hanging out with their friends, this sort of thing. With how fast paced our society is today, people just don't have that that kind of time. They'd rather do something for an hour, two, three hours, whatever, and then move on to something different. The second one was money. It's a very expensive game. It's very expensive to play, to buy all the clubs, to keep doing all those things. And as our economy dipped, people had to use their money in different ways. There wasn't as much uh, excess income to spend on this quite expensive sport. Number three, this one I found kind of odd. At the height of when Nike and Under Armour and Adidas were making all these great clubs and all these great gear the people that were making them wanted to continue creating the best gear so that people started performing better. And then when people started performing better, they started making the courses harder because the clubs and the balls and everything were getting better, right? But if you think about that, 
that starts to get away from like, you know, the people like me who have golfed, you know, 15 times in my life and I'm nowhere close to being good, but it makes it harder for, for beginners, right? Even more so for like some of the people on our staff that haven't held a golf club more than once in their life. Like it would not be fun for producer Sam Shepard to go to a golf course. She's not very good. <laughs> she was, it was fun to be in a little uh, in golfing bay with her yesterday. We did have a lot of fun, a lot of laughter. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things about Top Golf is that they have reacted to a lot of the, a, a lot of the things that golf was struggling from. So there is this like anyone can play it mentality. They're like how it's how it's scored is yeah, like I might get a couple more points for hitting a little bit farther, but Sam could hit it in the closest little circle. Like that's the goal. You're trying to hit it at these targets, right? And they're these close targets that you can just get just about the, about the same amount of points as me cranking it to the back of the net. So it's 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 welcoming to these beginners, which is the opposite of what like regular golf was doing, right? Top golf is also how have they changed this? Top golf is amazingly popular amongst millennials, and there are just, every time I go, it is absolutely packed there. We were there on what a, a Monday, and it was packed. Now, granted, it was a holiday when when we were there, but I went with my dad over Christmas break, In the middle of Christmas break. It's winter, and it was it was packed. On like a Wednesday afternoon. It's like, what the heck? People are loving it. It's convenient. It takes a short amount of time. You could have fun, just like bowling for an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever. There's uh, the implementation of technology. Like every ball has a chip in it. And it that chip reads where it goes into the target. And it gives you an amount of points that is shown to you on a TV screen. Like an iPad kind of thing screen in front of you. Then there's a big screen that has the scores and a football game going on, or a basketball game, whatever you want to watch. You can even change the channel for what you want to watch with an app, the Top Golf app on your phone. Like it's all tech- surrounded by technology, making it convenient and fun for everybody involved. And then it just creates this great atmosphere of community. There are, you know, there's drinks flowing, there's there's food, there's these couches where like you just get to hang out and have great conversations, like we did when we went this week. So why do I even talk about this? We all know that the Catholic Church is shrinking in America. Like, that's not news to anybody. It's not uh, accusatory. It's just facts, right? In the same way that when golf was declining, there are numbers that that back that up. The most recent number I heard that for every, every Catholic that's coming into the church through RCIA on the Easter Vigil, there are six leaving. Like, that's, that's crazy, right? There are people that are, that are going, going away, and I don't want to oversimplify this because there are so many things that are contributing to that. There's so many things that we could be doing better, and just, there's just so much that's changed over the last 30, 40 years that you know, we can't really give – I can't give a full answer on this. But here's what I want to look at. The same things that Top Golf has done for golf – how can we sh- learn some of those things to do it for the church? Like we said, the top golf was convenient. How can the church be convenient for people? Things like the new from the new evangelization, 
like listening to Catholic Radio in your car, like listening to podcasts. You can listen literally on demand wherever you want to. Some of these great YouTube videos. I was watching some stuff from the cat, that Catholic couple, uh, the Glaze family uh, the other day. Like I could just it, it, at dinner, just pull it up and I can be growing in my faith while I'm eating a, a sandwich. You know, it's very convenient and a way for me to grow in my faith. Uh, a, a, Top golf's good because it's a shorter amount of time than typical golf. Uh, this is for my priests that are listening. Short homilies. <laughs> You're killing me with these long homilies. That's, it's kind of a joke, but every, every joke has some truth to it as well. But meeting people where they are, understanding they're busy. This comes into like faith formation, setting times, all that kind of stuff. Uh, number three is technology. Using our cell phones, using app, like, apps like the Bible app from Uversion that we talked about all the time on the show. Uh, and very importantly, the last two I think are the most important: the atmosphere and community. Building this atmosphere where, like, we can feel like we're at Top Golf, where we're just hanging out, we're having fun together. There's food, there's drinks, there's great conversation, and then finally, anyone can play. Let's be welcoming to beginners, meet people where they are, and let's have some fun together, make Catholicism fun again, so that we can all grow in our faith together. Uh, At the end of the break, we will be talking to Father Augustine Weta. Don't go anywhere. Howdy, folks. It's Taylor. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. If you missed any of our past episodes, remember you can always find them on ForteCatholic.com slash radio, F-O-R-T-E Catholic.com slash radio, or find us on any podcasting service. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Forte Catholic. This is your host, Taylor Stroll. I'm excited for uh, this segment's guest. I heard this guy on Kyle Hyman's show, and I uh, just had to get him on the show. His name is Father Augustine Weta. He is a monk of St. Benedict. Father Augustine, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, I couldn't. Uh, let me think about this. Uh, as well, I'm doing great. It's my attitude that needs improvement. <laughs> I have a good life. I'm a happy monk. <laughs> You're a happy monk. I'm glad I asked just right off the bat. Like most of the time, I save the hard questions for later. I asked you how you were, and oh. you were stumped. So, <laughs> so this is this, this is gonna go great. Yeah, yeah. If it, this could go, th- this could be awkward. <laughs> if how I'm doing is a hard question to answer, then uh, who knows where we're gonna go from here? <laughs> it's like it's like on the SAT where you get ten points for spelling your name right. That's that's the kind of things that we're gonna have to take solace in. Today, uh, if people can't well, Tuesdays, I have five classes in a row right before the end of school. So I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not quite sure how I'm doing. <laughs> the question is, how are my students doing? And that, that I couldn't ask answer either. <laughs> They're probably proportional <laughs> in some way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give our audience a little behind the curtains look um, about on how we book guests, and also maybe show a little bit of. Uh, how messed up I am. Uh, this was all going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> so I, I get emails from like lists of people who like say, like this person has a new book out, or this person's doing this, and uh, would you like to have them on the show? And if I'm being completely honest, I saw uh, an email uh, uh, from this monk about this book called Humility, uh, about humility, and I, I've never met a monk in real life. I've only seen what's on television. And our goal here on Make Catholic, yeah. on Forte Catholic is make Catholicism fun again. And I was like, from the monks I've seen on TV, I don't think they make Catholicism fun again. 
And then my life, <laughs> my worldview was shattered. When I was listening to Kyle Hyman's show, I heard you on there. I said, this might be one of the jolliest and happiest and most fun people I've ever heard in my life. And he's a Benedictine yeah. monk. So thank you for shattering my worldview <laughs> and making me look dumb. I really appreciate that. Oh, well, anytime you need to look dumb, let me know. I, I'd be delighted. <laughs> the, uh, actually, you know, I, the, the first monk I met surprised me the exact same way. I, I met him in Rome. I was working as an archaeologist, long story, but uh, the very first thing that came out of he was six foot three, no, six foot six. He'd played football for Notre Dame. He'd been a, pat, uh, a, uh, a bartender at Pat O'Brien's in New Orleans. And I, the first thing I said to him was, I, I thought monks were skinny, bald dudes who didn't talk to anybody. <laughs> and he said, well, yet yeah, now some of us are, but <laughs> I'm not one of them. <laughs> As I'm fond of saying, that there are two types of men who join a monastery. There are those for whom it fits their character and those for whom it uh, tames their character and I guess it's common knowledge that I'm one of the latter type. <laughs> I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. Though, <laughs> so. well, again, you'd be surprised at the kind of guys who become monks. We've got a monk here who uh, worked in the movies. We got a call from MTV not long ago asking him how to make fake candles. We've got a <laughs> monk who was a physicist at Princeton. We've got a monk who was a Rhodes Scholar, uh, uh, you name a Marine, two ex-Special Forces guys, a sniper. You know, you'd just be amazed at the kind of guys who end up in monasteries. Yeah. It, you, I am. Yeah. <laughs> that you, they, they let you in, most of all, right? I, I, I heard you yeah, talking about that. Yeah, you'd be surprised yeah. at the kind of guys they let into monasteries. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm i hoping that the same uh, eye-opening experience that you had in Rome and that I had listening to you a couple of weeks ago will happen for our audience today. So uh, let's get to know you a little bit. I saw, like, we got to know each other. I, fo I followed you on Twitter, that sort of thing. I see that you're a juggler and a surfer. Why don't you tell us a little bit el uh, a little bit more about yourself? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, uh, it's uh, my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> ironic for a guy who wrote a, wrote book, a book on, on humility. humility. <laughs> We've got a we've got an older monk who says enough of me talking about me. What what do you think of me? <laughs> uh, so let me think. What uh, grew up on an island in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it was a tourist island, so that's where I, why I started juggling. Was you could you could we could pull in about uh, three hundred bucks on a weekend. You know, just setting up a circle and juggling. We were the Flying Fettuccine Brothers. Uh, and uh, so I did that for a while, worked on the beach patrol, did o made over 300 rescues and three deaths. So I guess I was uh, above, well, uh, yeah, I don't know whether that's a good percentage or not. I'm not, not sure anyway, how to react no, to this no at all. Deaths yeah. were my fault, I'm proud to say. Um, very glad. I don't know what I am to say about it, but anyway, <laughs> it happened. This is those five classes <laughs> talking. <laughs> Again, this could go anywhere. Um, the Let's see, uh, became an archaeologist, worked in Rome for a little bit, and then in Athens, uh, decided to go to grad school, moved to Missouri, changed my mind, became a monk. They, and they still haven't kicked me out, so here I am. <laughs> There you go. That's the whole story. That's the, to end. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because after we got to know each other, I saw that you were from Galveston, which is that little island that you juggled on and saved yep. three hundred people. Uh, I grew up <laughs> thirty minutes from there, uh, and like our oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. Our high schools were like rival high schools. Like I I played <laughs> football and basketball like 
against your school all the time. So I thought thought that was a, a funny little uh, coincidence, <laughs> and it it kind of makes sense that you are a different kind of monk because you're the monk from the island. You know, island people have us. You know, they're a little special, so it, it makes a little yeah, sense in my mind. Yeah, my sister is actually was actually born on the island, and that's a special uh, 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 prestige right there. And Galveston's a strange. You know, it, it's the only island. It's the only city in the U.S. that tried to be its own country. It, for, for, in fact, I think it was its own country for about a day and a half. During Prohibition, Galveston decided it wasn't going to be part of the Union anymore, and then they sent in the, the National Guard, and that was the end of it. But it's, uh, and, it, and, and uh, the pirate Jean Lafitte lived in Galveston, too. So That might be my favorite, yeah, favorite war are, story. Are odd and special people. Sorry? I said that might be my favorite war story ever. It's like, no, we want beer. We're our own country right. until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess they had one, 24 hours of partying. And the piers, actually, one of the piers is specially designed so that the, there are trap doors that open in the bottom of it, and all the booze would fall out into the water when the cops came. And then they send kids down below to fish it back out again when the cops were gone. And that was your first job. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I'm not that old, quite, but uh, there were certainly uh, it's part of our history. <laughs> so let's talk about this book. It's called Humility Rules: uh, Saint Benedict's Twelve Step Guide to Genuine Self Esteem. We we've already talked. Or if like, you're on the beach, if you're on the beach, it's Humility Rules. <laughs> it, it all depends on how you pronounce it. <laughs> Sorry, can, <laughs> go, go ahead. You can enunciate every different <laughs> syllable, and it would be a different book. We could, we could have a whole other segment right. on that. Um, so, humility I, rules. I opened up this book, and there's the cover of Saint Benedict. He's holding a skateboard, <laughs> so it intrigued mm. me. I, I I kept opening more pages. Uh, he's wearing a backwards hat, which makes me very happy because my friends at the Catholic Man Show and Patrick Coffin hate my flat belt uh. hats, and they say it's not manly. I'm like, well, St. Benedict wore one. See, it's in this book what? as proof. <laughs> wearing your hat, baseball hat backwards isn't manly? Apparently. That's, that's, what, that's what I've been told. I don't told. believe it. I don't either. I don't it's it. it's uh, Team Schroll and Father Augustine versus the Catholic Man Show and Patrick Coffin. Uh, it, this is going down. We will all meet somewhere. Okay. And and uh, I'm in. And uh, what would we do? It's going to be really humiliating when he gets beat up by a man in a dress. <laughs> <laughs> the- you can you can pass that right along to him. <laughs> I will I will make sure I let him know immediately at the conclusion of this interview. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. You tell him I'm waiting for him with a crozier. <laughs> how many how many threats of physical violence have ever happened on a Catholic radio show? This might be a first. Uh, I don't know how many monks have you had on. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a rule that, that, well, number one, we're the only order that has a stipulation in our rule of what we're to do with our swords while we sleep. St. Benedict says, don't sleep with your sword, you'll roll over and stab yourself. And we're all, and also in the rule, it says that monks are strictly forbidden to hit each other. Um, So clearly there were monks hitting each other at some point, or else he wouldn't have to make up a rule like that. So you have changed it. Well, when you live in a cloister with 30 guys, you know, it's not, blows are never far, far away. (laughs) So you need some humility. You've already talked about your need for it. We've already talked about you making me look stupid on my own show, which is, uh, you know, bringing me some humility. So let's talk about the book. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to work harder. You seem pretty <laughs> smart to me. I, I guess I better work harder. <laughs> I, I have fooled you very well. So, uh, oh, good. Let's let's actually talk about the book. Otherwise, Ignatius Press is going to be very angry with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> why? They're already angry with me, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I heard in your last interview that you said on the air that you don't like the title of the book. I'm like, what? Can you say that? You probably got rid of it. I wrote the title of the book. It's just misleading because I don't really believe in self-esteem. That's the that that's the catch. It, it's a misleading, a deliberately misleading title. Uh, I'm I made it up myself because I wanted to catch people who are interested in self-esteem. But if truth be told, uh, you know, I don't think self-esteem is part of Christianity at all. We don't esteem ourselves highly. Can you imagine John the Baptist, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm beautiful and people love me and I'm worth it," you know? <laughs> He said, no, I'm a, or, or the psalmist, I'm a worm, I'm a no man, I'm laughing stock. I must decrease, he, he, he must increase, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's hard to esteem yourself highly when you wear sackcloth, though, so he had that going Right, and, and I try to wear extra sackcloth whenever possible. <laughs> so, so, so why <laughs> write a, a book about, <laughs> why write a book about, about self-esteem? Like, what is your goal in writing this book, Humility Rules? Why write it about self-esteem? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> the, the, um, when the abbot made me the chaplain to the school, the first thing I said to him was, but I'm a terrible monk. And he said, yeah, you are, but <laughs> your heart's in the right place. <laughs> and, but I quickly learned that I, the kids are wonderful, of course, but they're bombarded on every side by people who are tr- trying to feed them these empty narcissistic cliches like you're perfect just the way you are and follow your dreams and and uh, just be true to yourself you know and and all this is meaningless right and uh, because if you have stupid dreams or evil dreams then you shouldn't follow them and you're not perfect the way you are and uh, so i think my first instinct in writing this book was to try to tell the kids that they're not perfect. It, somebody wrote a review of my book and he said, this book doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I don't care about your feelings. Uh, what I want you to do is be holy and realistic and become a saint. And, um, and, and the beauty is that if, you, if you're realistic about yourself, that you're unwor- an unworthy servant of God, then uh, as, as the great theologian uh, Janis Joplin said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? You, there, when there's nowhere to go but up, then you're, real, then you're really free. And, and I think, to, well, the, the other thing happened that I was, at, uh, I was at a pharmacy picking up some medicine for one of the old monks, and, you know, they have these self-help books on the counter, and one of them was uh, it was called the T. I think. I hope I get the title wrong, so I don't get sued. But it's called, I think, the Teen's Guide to Self-Esteem, and the subtitle was "Learning to Love the Most Important Person in the World, You." <laughs> and I, I looked at the pharmacist and I said, "This is the, the worst advice." You could ever give a teenager. (laughs) Number one, they already think they're the center of the world. And number two, if they don't, think about the pressure that puts on them. I mean, they're the center of the world. Everything they do has infinite consequences, and it does in a sort of way. But 
the good news is that we're all failures, and that's why Jesus is here, to take up the slack for us, right? It's also really weird that it's a book that wants to be heard is saying, don't listen to anyone else. That's an odd thing, just from a marketing perspective yeah. to say. Right? That, yeah, that's odd too, isn't it? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple you're, of them. You're not as dumb as you pretend. <laughs> or I was going to say you're not as dumb as you look, but I don't know what you look like because you're on the radio. I'm about my as dad used to tell me about as dumb as I look. Tell me I'm not as dumb as I look. Sorry, I I, I am about as dumb as I look. I look pretty dumb. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, there you go. Then you're on your way to humility. When I when I told the novices I was writing a book on humility, one of them said, "Well, of course you are." And I, I said, oh, thanks. And then I thought about it. I thought, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> Came back, I was like, well, well, what do you mean, of course I am? He said, well, you have so many good reasons to be humble. <laughs> I was uh, novices. We were in our office the other day, and uh, somebody was making fun of me for being bald. And I realized that, ah. that like, God always wanted, to be hum- wanted me to be humble, and one of them was a surprise. I knew that going bald was, like, I knew I was going to be bald. That was a surprise. We, our family is male pattern baldness. What I didn't know before <laughs> I started balding is that I have a huge mole on the top of my head that I couldn't see when I oh. had hair. And now it's, like, the most mm. prominent feature on my head. So God knew so that I was going to be like a big eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So God knew that I was going to be prideful. And then he said, you know what? You That's go. all going to change soon. You're going to go bald. And well, then you're going to hear about this book called Humility Rules by Father Augustine. Wood. <laughs> though you can tell them that the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when they make fun of the bald guy, the kids get eaten by a bear. Yeah. I've, right? I've been trying to call she bears for many years and it's never worked. Yeah. No. <laughs> No. Well, you, you, okay. Well, you can. It's something to shoot for. Definitely. So you've talked about a couple of these things that you that you uh, these tropes that you attack in the book. You know, like follow yeah. your dreams or uh, be true to yourself. The first one that you say is be afraid. Why do you want people to be afraid? Um. Well, I. I yeah. I. It's again. The titles are a little deliberately provocative. Um. Well, St. Benedict's first step of humility is to have fear, have the fear of God always before your eyes. And um, while the goal is, you know, love, a a perfect love that drives out fear, at the same time, um, if you're not in awe of God's greatness, if if there isn't a part of you that cringes at the thought of being judged, then um, you really, I I think you're suffering from a profound lack of perspective. You know, when when St. Peter first met Jesus, he threw himself on the floor and said, leave me, I'm a sinful man, you know? And that's, I think, I think it's, it's the fear of hell and the fear of judgment that saves us from that complacency that, um, that I think we really fall into pretty easily these days, that, that um, oh, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, what is it, we, um, nowadays we don't like to think of God as a father, but as a heavenly grandfather, a sort of senile old guy who doesn't much care what the young folk do so long as nobody gets hurt. You know? <laughs> right. Um, the Jesus is my homeboy sort of attitude. That uh, that that's all right. But monks tend to to, to uh, err toward you know Jesus the Pantocrator, Jesus who comes in riding on the clouds with his name carved in blood on his thigh. You know that's there's. <laughs> That Jesus is in the Bible, too. <laughs> he absolutely and is. It's a great place to start. Better not to forget about him. 
Yeah, thanks thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing. Uh, if you want we're more, guys, already? yeah, we're done already, man. People got to go buy your book, and I got to I got to move on, man. I, I, I wish uh, we had more time. We'll have you back on some other time. Oh, please, Father Augustine Weta, go buy the book on Ignatius Press or Amazon, whatever. <laughs> Humility buy rules. Three. Check it out. Buy buy seven. <laughs> we'll we'll be back for our final segment of the day. A perfect number of books. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Howdy, podcast listeners. It's just me and you now, and I want to talk to you guys about my booking for 2018. I would love to come help make Catholicism fun again at your next parish event, diocesan event, whatever you got going on. I would love to be involved. Head on over to ForteCatholic.com slash booking. You can find out all about my speaking and worship leading, the kind of stuff that I stuffs, the kind of stuff that I can do there, and uh, we can go from there. Uh, let me know how I can help. Peace. Alrighty, we are back for our final segment of the day. Most of you that have heard the show before know that our second segment is where we have a guest, but uh, we had a special extenuating circumstances happen this week. It is Pro-Life Month, and the March for Life, this huge pro-life event, is happening this week. So we thought we'd bring on none other than... Then Catholic Answers Pro-Life Specialist, welcome back to the show for the third time, Mr. Trent Horn. Trent, how you doing this evening, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm glad. I'm so glad to have you back on uh, very recently. I haven't even told you this yet, but uh, very recently we revealed like the t- top 10 most downloaded shows, like ep- podcast episodes of Forte Catholic ever. And you are sitting at number two. You are the second most downloaded podcast. So you're amazing. And thanks for coming back on. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, I didn't get a chance to get silver in Beijing, but if I could get silver medal on your show, that's really good too. It's essentially the same thing. So <laughs> we did it. We did it together. I, I, but we're having you on today to talk about pro-life things. Uh, with pro, with it being pro-life month, we just had to get you on before the end of the month. And this big old uh, March for Life that happens. Uh, every year. For those that don't know, why don't you just uh, explain a little bit what the March for Life is? Sure. The March for Life uh, was an education project started by the uh, March for Life Fund back east. I believe it grew out of the National Right to Life Committee. The first one, uh, I I think it might have actually been before 1973, but March for Life goes way, way back, back to the Roe versus Wade day. And there have been many others in different cities, but the first major one was in Washington, and you know now hundreds of thousands of people come every year uh, in January because that's when Roe versus Wade was decided. So they come no matter what the weather is, even when it's a snowpocalypse or something like that. Uh, and then somewhat more recently, uh, it expanded. There, there are local marches here and there, but the other uh, famous march that goes on is the West Coast Walk for Life in San Francisco, which is not the most pro-life city in the country. So. The first time it happened, they had to have like police every six feet oh, along wow. the route to protect the marchers. But um, it's a wonderful event every year for pro-lifers to gather together in solidarity to show that there are many, many, many people who believe in protecting the unborn, and our voices will be heard. 
That's amazing. My wife was able to go to the one in D.C. whenever she was a student over at Ave Maria University, and she really enjoyed it. I always wanted to go, but I was always like, it was always something, you know, every year there was something that happened. I was able to go to the local Texas one, but no, I mean, I love Texas, but it's, it wasn't for once. Everything wasn't bigger in Texas. The March for Life in D.C. <laughs> is way bigger than our local one here. But the reason that I wanted to have you specifically come on to the show is because uh, the last time uh, to talk about pro-life stuff, the last time we had you on, you, we talked about your book, Why, Why We Are Catholic. And I loved your focus on like not bashing people over the head with the truth, but being persuasive. You have this book out um, called Persuasive Pro-Life, uh, How to Talk About Our Culture's toughest issue. And just to kind of set up our conversation, I, like I'm passionately pro-life. I've been involved in the pro-life mu- movement for, for years through uh, prayer, sidewalk counseling, the works, all these kinds of stuff. And I'm often turned off by some of the conversations happening in the church ab- around the pro-life movement when it comes to talking to people who, who don't agree with the truth, don't agree with what with what uh, the church teaches. And, and I've been turned off by this combative sense amongst it. And I think you have uh, proven uh, over the course of time how to be persuasive and still love the person that you're talking about. So why did you why did you write this book and how can we be persuasive and to actually open the door to change people's hearts? Right. Well, I wrote the book because I had spent many years in the field uh, on college university campuses doing outreaches, doing sidewalk debates and dialogues with pro-choice college students. And I learned a lot about how to have dialogues with strangers on this issue. And I share the same sympathy that I would see people engage in who were Catholic or Christian um, talking about abortion, but doing it, yeah, in a combative, ineffective way. And I felt there was something better. And I had learned that way during this time with this organization, Justice for All. And so I poured everything from my research and my experience really into this book because there wasn't a comprehensive lay book that really equipped people to have these different kinds of conversations. There were books that talked about how bad abortion was, and there were books by philosophers of great arguments that were just, you know, kind of not accessible to the general public. So I felt I could bridge the gap by creating this book to, to meet all those different needs. Well, good. Let's, let's get into it because I think that, I mean, that's absolutely intriguing to me, because I feel like that's been a, a big thing that's been missing, at least when I started in this pro-life work, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. It was a big thing that was missing for me then. And I'm thinking your book has has found this this middle ground between those things. So in the book, you talk about people being afraid to speak about abortion. And I know that I have felt that or I like just a, a regular Catholic sitting in the pews, like they hear something at work or they run into something where people are pro-choice and it's like, uh, I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to say anything. So like, what would you tell to, to those of us, what would you say to those of us who have had that struggle or currently have that struggle? Sure. I would just say, I understand. I totally understand where you're coming from. Like when I travel and I'm going to go to a talk on abortion, it's it's so funny. I won't have any fear of getting up in front of, you know, 500,000 people to talk about abortion. But I'll be scared, too, to want to talk about what I'm going to talk about to the person sitting next to me on the airplane. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to be in an awkward situation. Uh, but what I've learned over this time is if you're worried about not knowing what to say, that's because we think we have to have a great speech or, uh, you know, our little... Uh, one-off saying like, oh, here's why I'm pro-life. Here's why abortion's wrong. Uh, here's why if you're for abortion, you're wrong. 
we don't need to say anything. We need, we don't need the right answers. We need the right questions. That's something I try to teach people in all fields of apologetics, but especially this one, that you just need the right questions to ask people who are in favor of abortion, why they're in favor of abortion. What are the reasons? And by asking questions in an artful way, you can expose the inconsistencies and the lack of logic in the other person's position. And through that, they can reconsider their position without you having to explicitly do it for them. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. I really like that a lot. It's very Jesus-like, the way that he would always ask questions. Even right. when, when he was asked a question, he answered with a question. It's like that great uh, whose line is it anyway kind of game. I love I love that about Jesus and, and obviously that about you and your book here. Uh, you mentioned that you've you worked as a pro-life organizer for many years. I think it was over a decade, if I read it right. And over that time, like you honed in on your craft of speaking to these large audiences, but also speaking one-on-one. Most of us will never speak to a large audience about this. So what would you share with, the, with those of us who are going to have these one-on-one interactions or small group interactions? What, what is like the one or maybe two things that you would share on, uh, on something that you've learned or how you taught people to speak sure. persuasively about this pro-life uh, thing that we care so much about? Uh, one is subject and the other is technique. Subject is simple. When it comes to abortion, you don't want to talk about poverty, welfare, politics, uh, feminism, overpopulation. You need to keep the conversation focused, and you need to be focused on one question that matters most. What are the unborn? What are they? If they're human beings, none of those reasons justify abortion. If they're, if they're non-human beings, you don't need a reason to justify abortion. The government should make it legal, and medical you know, insurance should probably pay for it if the unborn are not human beings. So that's a subject you always want to return to. And so that subject, technique, however, the way to get there is by asking questions. I always try to ask people questions over and over to get them to see where their position doesn't make sense. So on this issue, I'll ask people, well, when are you in favor of legal abortion? All nine months? Any reason? Most people believe abortion should be restricted in some way. And I'll ask, well, well, why? Why that much? Why do you draw the line here or there? And if people see they're being arbitrary, I ask them, do you think laws on who gets to live and die should be arbitrary? So all kinds of questions and even really simple questions. What does it mean to be pregnant? What's a person? What's a fetus? What does abortion do to a fetus? Uh, you know, asking all these kinds of questions help people to see the unborn as a human being. Abortion unjustly ends their life. And is that something humane society should tolerate? So keep focused on whether the unborn are human beings and ask questions to always get back to that one question. That's tremendous, because as I'm hearing you share about these things, I was um, thinking about how how the person would leave that conversation with you. Right. If you're asking these questions and they're wrestling with their own thoughts, they leave that thinking about it. They're going to walk away in that evening, maybe the next day, the next day rethinking like, oh, what is my position on life? Because Trent asked yeah. me these questions. Uh, what uh, it, Instead of, you know, you or me or whoever just saying like being pro-choice is wrong. The baby is a human. Y- you have to be pro-life. They would leave not liking you and probably disliking the church. <laughs> you know? and like, yeah, they may, they may feel as if you are imposing a view on them. You're trying to force your view. And we're scared of the idea of forcing a view on someone else or being imposing or offensive. But when you ask the question, what you're saying is, look, here's something we need to answer. There's truth here we need to figure out. What's your answer to it? What do you think about it? What are your reasons? 
And now suddenly it's not you pushing something on them that they can just ignore. Rather, they say to themselves, well, what is the answer to this question? What do I believe? Why do I think that? And you're right. That stays with them longer because they're grappling with it instead of just hearing you kind of talking at them. So you're absolutely right. And that's why I believe in teaching this technique uh, to as many people as possible. Right. You mentioned like, uh, you know, in these conversations, people grappling with these with these ideas. I think some of us, even within the church, often have to grapple with some of the arguments um, against the pro-life stance. So in our last couple of minutes together, a few minutes together, um, what are the most common objections to the pro-life stance that you have encountered? And then how would you go about answering those? Sure. Uh, The most common ones would be arguments from necessity. We need abortion because, uh, you know, people are poor or, you know, there's overpopulation or there's lots of reasons people give, or maybe a woman is a victim of rape. I mean, that accounts for about 1.5% of abortions, but everybody throws it out there as a reason for all abortions to be legal. It's an argument from necessity. To respond to these kinds of arguments, we have to show that these reasons wouldn't justify killing a two-year-old. You don't kill two-year-olds who live in poverty. You don't kill toddlers to reduce overpopulation. Uh, you wouldn't kill a child. You wouldn't even kill a rapist in order to ju- in order to find a way to bring justice to a rape victim. You, you, that you, we wouldn't legally execute a rapist in this country. Yet we do these kinds of things to children who are conceived in rape, or we kill unborn children who are conceived in poverty. So we show, well, look, if the unborn is like a two-year-old, treat them like a two-year-old, don't kill them for these reasons. Now, the other common argument people will say is, uh, you know, well, they're, they're not like two-year-olds, they're fetuses, they're not human. And in the book, I show the evidence that the unborn are growing, so they're alive. They have human parents, they must be human. And they're an individual living being like you and I, they're smaller and less developed. But when does size and development change our values? So those are probably the two most common kinds of arguments you'll come across. Wow. Yeah, I had never thought about the, you know, a two-year-old being in poverty, and you like we wouldn't even think of that, right? Like it doesn't not even cross our mind, and yet it's so prevalent um, amongst right, those who, if, who aren't pro-life. If the unborn are as human as a two-year-old. The thought of abortion should not cross our minds either. So it shows that when it comes to abortion, and some even some Catholics don't get this. They think the way to solve abortion is to reduce poverty spend more on welfare, promote contraception. Abortion is not a social problem. It is a moral problem. It is the problem of people thinking that an unborn child is not as valuable or not as human as a two-year-old or you or I. That is the problem we have to address in our conversations. Wow. So in your experience of being a leader in the pro-life movement, like as an organizer for over a decade, and now one of the prominent writers and speakers on the topic. I, I just want to know before we uh, part ways, what's like the craziest or most interesting story that you can share with us, like a personal story of you talking with somebody about these issues? I, I don't know. I have had um, so many different kinds of people. I have had conversations, everything, uh, from soup to nuts, you know, <laughs> um, I, I think the, the, you know, the one that just sticks out recently, that was hard for me. Uh, it was a standard objection at an odd time for me in my life. It was on the radio show and someone was saying the unborn is a parasite and that's why abortion's okay. And I had just gotten a text at that very moment that my best friends here 
were enduring a miscarriage. So it was a perfect storm that rattled my chains and people commented like, Trent Horn got angry for once. It's unbelievable. You know, <laughs> like, um, and that just shows that, look, this is an emotional issue. It's okay to have emotions about this. We should have emotions, but we should control our emotions and channel them to do good, not let our emotions control us and drive us into being, uh, you know, obnoxious or people who lack graciousness in our conversations. We need to defend the unborn with logic and gracious, persuasive arguments. How are you able to keep this, like this, uh, like you are known for being able to stay calm in some of these uh, high-intensity situations? Like, where does that come from? How did how did you obtain that and keep that up? Sure. I mean, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit. You know, the, that God gives you the grace to be calm in these situations. You have to pray and be connected to that. It's practice. Having done this many, many, many times, it feels second nature. So I don't have to get defensive. I I know what's happening and I can just kind of relax and be calm about it. Um, and then also just knowing that the person I'm talking to is not the enemy. They're someone who is mistaken and I really want to help them or at least help others who are listening to us talk to be able to come to the truth. Well, Trent, thanks again for coming on guys. If you want to check out the, the March for life, there's coverage all over the place. Just Google March for Life and you will find it. My wife loves to live stream it every year since she's been. And obviously, if you want more from Trent, go find Persuasive Pro-Life. It's on the Catholic Answers store, catholic.com. It's on Amazon. It's on whatever. Trent, uh, anything else you'd like to share with us? How can people get connected with you? Uh, If they'd like to learn more, uh, they can always follow me on Facebook and Twitter, Trent Horn Catholic Apologist. My website is trenthorn.com or they can go to the Catholic Answers uh, website, which is catholic.com. Well, perfect. Uh, best of luck to you this year. Happy New Year. I look forward to having you on again sometime later this year. It's always a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we can get this episode up into the top 10 as well. So uh, it'll be it'll be a lot of fun. So, yeah, just thanks again for all that you do for the church and for uh, spending some time with us uh, little old cold Texans here today. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> well, God bless. Uh, guys, thanks again for listening to today's show. It was a tremendous one. I hope you are staying warm if you are here locally in Texas or listening in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stay warm. Have some hot cocoa. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll be back next week. Uh, Tony Vicinda is going to make his official uh, joining of the show. He came on a couple of times during Ministry Madness talking about the Threshold Podcast, Project YM, Catholic Beard Bomb. It's going to be br- great. I can't wait to see you next week. See ya!